Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Strength and Conditioning Technical Lead at the English Institute of Sport, Luke Sweet, and Head of Paralympic Performance Support at the English Institute of Sport, Tom Paulson. tuned into this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So recently I had a couple of conversations on Twitter about gaps that were missing in the podcast archive and one thing that came to mind uh, via someone else was the lack of practitioners who work with Paralympic athletes. So that got a few tags and a few people got involved and it ended up with this episode with Luke Sweet and Tom Paulson. So this episode gives a really interesting overview of what it's like to work with Paralympic athletes. Some of the um, challenges, the obvious challenges, but also how these two guys have overcome them challenges and almost definitely made me reframe how I assumed it would be working with Paralympic athletes. Now hopefully that will do the same with you guys as well who are listening. So it's a really interesting chat with these two. Um, we don't go into tons of detail in terms of the, the kind of technical ins and outs, X's and O's of working with Paralympic athletes because it is so complex. But this gives a really nice overview of what it's like um, to be in the trenches with um, with the Paralympic athletes leading up to an Olympic Games. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode and would, of course, as always, love your feedback. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Luke Sweet and Tom Paulson. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome Luke Sweet and Tom Paulson to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Hi, thank you very much. Hi, Rob. Thank you guys for coming on. So it, this came around after a couple of people on Twitter got in touch and said, we haven't had, or I haven't had any guys on who have specialised in uh, working with Paralympic athletes. And at which point I thought, that's absolutely true and I should be doing that. So... It's great to get you guys on, especially with the um, the amount of experience that you guys have got. So we'll start with Tom, just because you're at the top of my list on the recording screen here. Tom, do you just want to give us a bit of a, an overview of your background, your education, mm-hmm. and the role you're doing, uh, the role you've got, sorry, at the EAS currently? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a physiologist by trade. So I studied physiology at Loughborough University. Uh, first got involved in Paralympic sport during my MSc, so looking at a uh, a project around workload and immune health in wheelchair athletes. Um, subsequently, after that, did a PhD around the exercise physiology of, of different impairments, particularly around spinal cord injury. Um, athletes involved in wheelchair basketball, wheelchair rugby and athletics and a number of other sports. Uh, and then from then moved into a more of a performance support role with wheelchair rugby in the build-up to the Rio Paralympic Games, uh, but also with a remit for kind of scientific research at Loughborough University so enhancing our understanding of of different athletes in different sports and subsequently after the games moved into the EIS firstly as a pathway scientist so looking at the kind of recruitment and development of Paralympic athletes and then since kind of summer of 2017 been head of Paralympic performance support which essentially is looking at the the strategy for the organization in terms of how we support Paralympic athletes and coaches uh, specifically around how we develop people and their expertise in this area, but also kind of the unique support requirements that athletes, coaches and NGBs have in preparing for Tokyo and uh, and beyond. Mm-hmm. So that's more of a, you're involved more with the coaches rather than direct with the athletes? Yeah, so I guess from my perspective, we're kind of one step removed from the front line where we um, sit within the system providing support for athletes, coaches um, and the multidisciplinary support teams that are embedded within each sport. Um, so that there might be occasions where we have expertise and we go and provide direct support on the ground. Um, but we're mainly kind of, um, yeah, working in support of the, the athletes and coaches. Mm-hmm. So we'll come back to that kind of structure in a minute. But would you mind giving us a bit of an intro on yourself, Luke? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, so I, I'm a strength and conditioning coach by trade and I'm now a a technical lead for the Midlands uh, with EIS. Um, I guess in terms of my S&C journey, uh, uh, for me it all started being a very average basketball player. Um, When I say average, I mean very average. Uh, You know, I was, I I think on reflection that's probably where I experienced being coached and I had had quite good role models in, in coaching and coaches there. Um, but I, I quickly realised, uh, you know, I wasn't going to be a, a Michael Jordan or a Vince Carter. So um, kind of got my head down and I went to Brighton Uni, did a, a, a sport and exercise science degree there, um, based near my hometown. Uh, whilst doing that, I was uh, personal training at, at David Lloyd for a number of years. Um, then, yeah, from there, I went to uh, uh, MSc. At the time, I think there was only two two universities that did... Uh, MS, uh, MSCs in, in strength and conditioning. I think it was Middlesex and, and Edinburgh at the time. If, if I'm right on that, I'm not sure. But I kind of, for me, I didn't really move home because of Brighton Uni. It was 
my undergraduate degree was kind of home-based, so I needed to almost fly the nest sort of thing. So I, with my MSc, I went all the way up to Edinburgh, so I tried to get as far away as possible, really. Um, but there I kind of exposed myself to, to internships and, you know, all sorts of different things. as Scotland rugby, as a Hibernian ladies football teams, and I tried to just take advantage of a lot of opportunities there, but... Um, some things didn't materialize in jobs, but they were still good opportunities nonetheless. Um, I ran a, a PT business up there as well. Um, that kind of financed the, the MSC in some way. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't, didn't manage to land any jobs up there. So I kind of moved back down south, um, back down home in, in East Sussex. Um, started another, another internship at West Ham FC, where I worked at the academy, um, did that for a number of months. That was quite good in terms of just creating buy-in with with youth youth athletes. Um, got some interesting stories there. Um, then I managed to get my almost my first my first sort of paid gig in SNC, which was in in Cambridge. Um, so I moved to moved to Cambridge at a company called Core Cambridge. I was there for eleven months. Um, some some listeners might know the place, and from there I. Then applied for a role uh, with the EIS, uh, or I applied for a role before that, which I which I didn't get unfortunately. But I, you know, I learned a few things there and sort of developed those areas. And I went to Loughborough, so I managed to get a, a multi-sport strength and conditioning role in Loughborough. Uh, I think my technical lead was Tommy Yule at the time. Uh, also had uh, the likes of Jared Deacon, who's now up in up in Scotland. Um, and it was it was great. Those two years there, thirty nine athletes across nine different sports, and it was probably my my sort of first exposure of working with with Paralympic athletes as well I was quite involved in the games and in terms of um sort of the holding camp at Loughborough and and that sort of thing so that that was great experience and then I got my um first sort of role as a SNC coach in in just one sport uh based in canoeing and so that's when I joined British canoeing um in 2015 or 14 no 20 yeah sort of late 2013 early 14 so I moved to Nottingham, just up the road, um, and started working with British Canoeing. So I, I worked with the Paralympic program for a number of years through the Rio cycle and, and the games and everything there. And, and then I joined the Olympic program for a number of years. Um, and now I find myself as a, as a technical lead as a, in the Institute. So I've, I've sort of taken a step away from working directly with the athletes and, and now work, work with them through, through coaching and as a technical lead. Um, and I guess, like Tom alluded to, there is this technical lead. Is it's about enabling practitioners to be their best, technically and non-technically. Um, so we, we play a vital role there. So yeah, excellent. Thank you for that. Um, so Tom, just coming back to you and on the on the the structure in the EAS for the support of the Paralympic athletes. And this is coming from me, who's a complete novice when this with this kind of thing. And and I'm sure there's plenty of other people out there who are also wondering the same. What kind of support? network is there from an institute point of view for the how many athletes do you actually have and how many do you support and what that looks like mm-hmm. um so the main uh, support program is kind of driven by the athletes within their sports um so we currently support um 17 paralympic programs across across the country um and that kind of level of support will differ depends on the demands of the sport um the size of the program the size of the athletes um, but the main mechanism for us working with those sports is practitioners within their disciplines. So whether that's physiotherapy, strength, conditioning, nutrition, biomechanics, performance, lifestyle, psych, um, 
will have disciplines with their own expertise that contribute to the multidisciplinary support teams around those athletes and coaches. Um, the, the level behind that, which is kind of where Luke and I are working currently, is around kind of Paralympic leadership. So we have technical leads within each of the disciplines that have specific expertise in Paralympic support. So Luke, who we're talking with today, we've also got Paul Martin and Dawn Ibrahim in physio. We have Terry Paulson, who works in nutrition. So we have experts behind the scenes that if practitioners have specific questions around the support they're providing to athletes or the heads of performance support in each of the sports have a performance question they're looking to solve, then they can approach our group of kind of leadership expertise within the organisation. So, so in terms of sports science, trending condition, the kind of performance area, how many practitioners are there out there in the UK working with Paralympic athletes in, from, a, from an institute point of view? Um, I guess from an institute perspective, across the board, across all disciplines, we've got kind of 70 plus practitioners operating within sports. Um, yep. uh, and I guess that's just for interest, that's doubled um, since London 2012, if not more. So you look at the where Paralympic performance supports come from in the last few years, actually it's still very early in its development compared to probably Olympic support and actually some of the the bigger Olympic programs, Um, which is great because it actually means you have to be a bit more collaborative, a bit more creative when you're working through certain situations. Um, Luke, how many S&C specific practitioners do we've got with Paralympic support? Um, Directly involved with the EIS, I believe it's about uh, 10, um, but obviously there are a number of there are a number of sports that don't uh, sort of invest directly with DIS that have uh, S&C coaches as well. So they sit primarily in the NGB. Yeah, I think that's a good point to note. Actually, the practitioner network within NGBs and the Paralympic system is operates in quite a collaborative way. So where we're looking to kind of enhance understanding in this area that we try and operate across NGBs and EIS as much as possible. Yeah, no, that's cool. One thing out of interest, what what impact, and it was a clear impact because you just mentioned the impact in terms of the practitioner numbers, but on a wider scope, what did London do for Paralympic athletes and the whole ecosystem? I think it was um, it was the first opportunity for it almost to become slightly mainstream. So we kind of recognise the role that Channel 4 played and some of the advertising campaigns in, in getting it into everyday life and everyday conversation. Um, I think this was almost before my time while I was at university, but it, you get a sense that it gave the athletes a platform to perform on with kind of the, the crowd, the media attention. Um, and since then, kind of the Paralympic Games has probably evolved in that way. It's not always the case for all major championships, but certainly the Paralympic Games has it's kind of the third biggest sporting event um, in the sporting calendar. So it kind of recognises the, the scale of where that's come from. Um, and, and then that in turn reflects um, in the level of kind of expertise and professionalism required for athletes, coaches and performance support practitioners. Um, so so there's a, we're very lucky in this country in terms of the, the resource we have in terms of people and financial support to provide um the level of performance sport that athletes really need to deliver. Mm-hmm. So, so in terms of the categories, I don't know if that's the right word. I've just offended someone. But the categories when you when you watch the Paralympics and you watch the swimming or you watch the track and field, there's different categories of 
uh, of athletes. Yeah. Would you mind educating me, because I'm feeling completely inadequate here, <laughs> of, of, what, of what them categories are, and then we'll get on to how that actually affects you guys, especially you, Luke, as, as a guy on the ground, um, how that affects your practice. Sure, yeah. Yeah, Shall I, I'll give. I'll try and give a, a layman's approach because that's the kind of level that I'm operating at. And I, I, I cool. imagine <laughs> Ian Gowans is the, the classification lead for the BPA. So I imagine if he listens to this, he might cringe to start with. But um, the, essentially, there's there's a ten eligible impairment criteria that um, athletes have to satisfy to be involved in Paralympic sport. Um, so they range from kind of limb deficiency, visual impairment. Um, some neurological impairments. So you have a broad range of kind of impairments that gets you into the game. So it gets you into Paralympic sport. Um, after that, then there is a, within each of um, each sport has its own classification system, which is essentially designed to try and enable um, fair and equal competition um, across the board. So for athletics, for example, you'll have classifications for visual impairment. You'll have classifications for, limb deficient athletes you'll have classifications for wheelchair racers and then within each of those you'll have then have um a kind of a, a ranking system to put it one way in terms of the level of impairment but it's all driven by the effect of uh, the influence of an athlete's impairment on their sporting performance so you won't always have the same impairments competing within one event if the athletes might look quite different but the the main aim is that the the level of sport performance is, is quite equal across those so I'll, I'll come to you, Luke, on the, the kind of probably the first question into actually what you guys are doing or have been doing day to day. So in terms of them classification, in terms of different sports, different impairments that these athletes have that you're working with, how do you go about assessing, like if it's a 100 meter sprinter, they're running 100 meters and that doesn't change, but the different classifications and how that impacts their bodies, their physiology their psychology changes how do you how do you assess that and then build a program that is suited to each individual athlete in each individual category that's a huge question yeah that is a massive question um <laughs> do my best um so i guess from a strength conditioning standpoint the, the goal doesn't the goal doesn't change you know an athlete if it's if it is sprinting they need to get from you know a to b as as fast as, po- as, fast as possible um and each I, I guess within each sport you might have something like a, a what it takes to win or a, a reference point or a, a desired state that you, you try and get the athlete to um and it's just the, the impairment that the athlete has it would just have an effect on certain elements of that of that so if you if you look at sprinting let's say for example you know there's certain principles that need to take place in order to to get to the finish line and i think that they stay the same it's just how their impairment will affect certain components of it um and it's down to to us as 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 practitioners and also down to the athlete to uh, work in partnership together to to try and uh, fill those gaps uh, as best we can um and each what i would say is you know each every there's no there's no impairment that's um that's the same so say for example you take a a baloney amputee you know there's no one and they're not exactly the same each person will uh hold their impairment in a in a certain way um so therefore you know how you operate as an snc it isn't um it isn't the same you have to take that into account and i think there for me there are a lot of lessons that the strength and conditioning coaches in particular in my field that could really learn from working in Paralympic sport. Um, 
you know, there's there's huge amounts of, of work that could happen there. Um, a lot of lessons that that I've learned as an SNC coach, you know, going from Olympic sport to Paralympic sport and then back to Olympic sport has, has really progressed me as, as a practitioner and as a strength and conditioning coach. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess in that environment, super creative, super ad- adaptable in terms of who actually arrives in your environment? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you have you have to... I think your your principles don't change. You know, if an athlete walk, it comes in through the door, you know, you, they're still... You know they're an athlete. They're trying to win medals. You know yeah. it doesn't it doesn't doesn't change. But um, say for example, they come in with um, say a neurological condition. It's it's a case of just understanding how that affects them uh, in daily life, but also how it affects them, uh, how it affects performance. And there are a lot of things that you know in Paralympic in Paralympic sport and, and strength and conditioning. If you typed in Paralympic strength and conditioning to into research gate or anything like that, there's nothing. You know, you know research is dire. Whereas in Olympic sport, there's research is loads. And I think that. You've got to have a, an open mind. Um, you've got to have a, a real appreciation of human movement. Um, and I think it, as a strength and conditioning coach, it, you know, it's a real test of your bandwidth of solutions to create a desired adaptation. You know, if, if an athlete comes in and the principles of strength and conditioning, you know, progressive overload, um, you know, all sorts of different things, they don't change, but just the way that you've got to try and create that adaptation is just different. Um, the principle stays the same. And for me, it's, there's an element of, of individualization, you know, because no one athlete is the same and the way they, they have their impairments the same, you know, it's, it is true individualization in that sense. You know, you can't, you can't hide behind squat bench and chins. Um, you can't, you know, if you've got an athlete, you've got 10 athletes in a gym, you, for an SNC coach, you could, you could probably hide behind certain things. And, and whereas in, in this environment, you know, you've got 10 athletes all with different impairments. So you've got a real balance of, of coaching versus, you know, manual labor, so to speak. You know, you've got to manage, you've got to manage and facilitate a session versus actually got to coach in there and create technical change. So, so yeah, you are, you are right with creativity as well. And, and when people look at Paralympic strength and conditioning, you know, that's the first word that normally comes out is this sort of, problem-solving creativity sort of terminology which which is true and like I said about before like bandwidths of solutions that's I guess that's your creativity that you can you've you've got all your experiences and as an S&C coach that you can unlock and and use in a certain problem that you get faced with it doesn't matter what impairment that you get faced with it doesn't change so but I think you've got to be careful you know just just because you're creative doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's right um I've seen I've seen some SNC coaches that work with Paralympic athletes, you know, they suddenly think because they've been able to do a certain exercise with an athlete that they think that they're being creative. But what they don't realize is they're just creating more load, let's say, for a, um, a paraplegic athlete whose arms they, they need and shoulder function they need day to day. You know, say, let's say they're in a wheelchair, um, you know, you've added more exercises, more load to that, that, that area. Therefore, you know, end of the day, like, how does it, how does it relate to performance? And we don't want to just add stuff, you know, we're looking to, to minimize things and actually create a performance impact. So, yeah, there's quite a lot in there, mate. So hopefully I'd... Can I just build on one, though? No, that's, 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 I think, I think you described it really well there. I think that the, the one big thing we try and promote with kind of practitioners and coaches is just involving the athlete as much as possible in the process because there's certain things that... Um, as practitioners through training, like we just won't know, and you only really know through lived experience or experience of um, potentially sometimes athletes working with five or six practitioners over over two cycles, for example. So the athlete actually probably knows a hell of a lot more than than, than we do. 
Um, and, it, and it takes a bit of vulnerability sometimes as practitioners just to, to go and say to the athlete, oh, um, can you give me some feedback? What, what does that mean for you? What, are, are we working on the same page here? Um, and that's some of the best examples we have of kind of performance support in all the disciplines is that practitioner expertise built on the athlete and getting the athletes involved in that planning process. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the word I tend to use is partnership, you know, and I think it's, it is a, for me, when I reflect on my experiences as an SNC coach, you know, back in 2011, 2012, when I was first working in Paralympic SNC, like I, was, uh, I think I was with a wheelchair tennis player, you know, I, I remember someone saying, oh, yeah, yeah, um, you've got uh, wheelchair tennis as one of your sports. I'm like, all right, have I? It's like, yeah, you've got two athletes turning up at, um, I think they're, they're coming in three times a week now for, for so long. And I was just like, great, well, I've, like, what the hell do I do? Like, what's the process that I go through? And um, is it, you know, you quickly realize, hold on a minute, like, it's, it's a muscle it's a, you know I need to I need to bring my, my strength and conditioning game but also I need to show like Tom said a bit of vulnerability a bit of humility to kind of be like I, I can't relate to it I can't you know got to sit down and have those open honest discussions you know they might you know even if you want to have discussions about how they want their parent to be referred to let's say um, I mean that's a that's a whole whole topic as well so yeah <laughs> how much how much information and kind of in-depth knowledge <clears throat> excuse me do you get and this probably comes back to you tom in terms of the um the, the whole support structure how much information is needed on from, from practitioner point of view on the impairments that the athletes um exp- have, yeah. have got like from a how much understanding is actually needed from a strength and conditioning performance nutrition for, for you know from your from your side um, i think it's a really good question i think there's it's probably a foundation level of information that, that is just required to be to be effective. Um, so take a spinal cord injured athlete, athlete with spinal cord injury, for example. Uh, the level of that spinal cord injury has a huge influence on physiology, functional muscles, um, like Luke said earlier about kind of demands of everyday life. So you can probably have a theoretical understanding of um, how that might link to performance. Um, but then actually a lot of the legwork is to take that theory and put it into the sporting context and understand the demands of the sport alongside that kind of theoretical understanding. Um, I think one, one of the big, biggest challenges we have as a support system, uh, and I guess this would go for all of Paralympic sport, is um, so athletes with neurological conditions, whether that's um, cerebral palsy athletes that kind of deficits in neurological function from birth or acquired brain injuries, actually the the neurophysiology of those impairments is um, is very individual and it's completely individualized for that athlete depending on the event that happened. So you can have this uh, theoretical understanding of if this part of the brain, for example, is affected, then this is my, what we might expect. And we've got some great expertise internally online with some resources that Don Ibrahim and Paul Martin led. Um, but again, that's just the theory, and then it's bringing that theory off the paper, off the page, and bringing it to life in your own practice. One thing that I was going to suggest before I asked that question was, and, and talking about the creativity piece and and the kind of diversity that the, 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 of the athletes that you're working with, Luke, is there any specific examples? And I'm just trying to kind of paint the picture for those that are listening of um the, the like i said the diversity of athlete and how you may have to change like you say it's not just hiding behind bench chins and and, yeah. and and squats is there any examples that you can give us where you have had to change things based on um certain 
um, characteristics of, of their uh, yeah. issues? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if you take, if you take, um, let's, let's take, you know, one, one thing I would say is, you know, you're a strength and conditioning coach first, then, then, then you're a strength and conditioning coach that works with a power athlete second, you know, you, you know, you've got to be a, a good S and C coach first. And there, um, in terms of, in terms of actually like specific examples, I mean, you know, when I worked in, um, canoeing with the, the Paralympic program, um, each, what I would say is each sport has, I guess, different different number of classifications like in athletics they have a, a huge range whereas in say some smaller programs they might have a much um smaller degree of a range of impairments um but uh if i pick some examples you know it's uh, let's say i was trying to create overload in the upper body with some of our wheelchair users um and one of the one of the key performance criteria is you know trying to increase um, ability to express force in in the upper body and force down the shaft on a blade um, in canoeing. So a lot of the movements um, that we would kind of go through in the gym were kind of compromised by being in the wheelchair uh, and also trying to create stable platforms in the gym so that they could, I guess, create the amount of overload they needed to to get that desired adaptation. Um, so. I work quite closely with uh, one of the athletes um, and Pullum, actually. Um, one of the athletes' relatives works for Pullum. And um, we were kind of exploring this this idea around a gym a gym chair where it was like a, a fixed frame chair that, that has uh, levers. It has um, like a bucket seat. Basically, it's, it's a way of trying to minimize energy leakage um, so they could create a stable platform that's used for spinal, athletes with a spinal cord injury. Um, and you could adjust the chair. Uh, we just call it the para gym chair, um, and can't come up with a name for it. But I think Pullum actually, um, I think they, I think they sell it now. I think it's on their website. Um, so, but yeah, I think that that's just one example that we've had to kind of be a bit creative, I guess, or innovative around trying to again looking at you know what's required to make the boat go fast, and then working back, and then obviously faced with this problem in the gym around creating that adaptation. So, I think there's there's other ones, you know. You, you, you know, when you're working with athletes with limb loss, obviously there's you know, having a relationship with prosthetics. Um, and, you know, if you're going through squatting patterns, hinging patterns, you know, all of these things are, can be um, can be fairly complex to try and to achieve. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you're dealing with levers at the end of the day. So, you know, it's having a good relationship with your prosthetic companies and things like that. So potentially a, a gym prosthetic layer that, a leg that can provide enough um, dorsi, dorsiflexion at the ankles so that you can actually create the desired hinges and, and, and moment arms so you can create the adaptation around the hips and, and so forth um, without creating too much asymmetry um, and, and issues around the spine so there's one there's ones there and then I guess um, for me I haven't I've kind of worked mainly with athletes let's say with, with limb loss and limb deficiencies and, and those that have a spinal cord injury um, at different levels of function but there are other athletes that uh, other sorry conditioning coaches across the system that work with um, athletes that say with visual impairment or, or upper motor neuron disorders like um, cerebral palsy um, where let's take a, an individual called Sam Heathcote he leads the strength and conditioning program with para-athletics um, he works you know with the likes of Sophie Hahn and, and all of those guys in Loughborough and um, I guess one of one of the issues they face as an SNC coach is the variability that an athlete will come in let's say an athlete with a neurological condition you know it's one athlete in particular that comes through the door um i don't want to go into too much medical terminology but comes through um sort of a, a presentation of their impairment but then it, that presentation 
can change day to day, um, depending on all sorts of different factors, fatigue being one. So the asymmetry or, or the, the characteristics of how they present uh, their impairment can change day to day. So if one day, you know, you've got squatting in your program, let's say, and you've got it for four weeks. Well, you know, you, you probably might not be squatting for four weeks. You might have to, you know, you've got to change, you've got to have a, a plan B or, a, you know, a different, again, coming back to your bandwidth of solutions, it just comes back to that. You know, you've got to have, um, you know, what, what's the adaptation? How do you create it? You know, we've done all sorts of things, trying to get muscle bulk on a, on a residual limb um, to try and, you know, minimize pressure sores in the boat, you know, when they've got a lot of leg drive, again, there's a foot plate in canoeing. So, you know, you're trying to create enough um, sort of properties in, in that residual limb so that they can deal with the brunt of the, lo- the load and, the, and the, the ability to extend the leg. So uh, we've done all sorts of things with, you know, occlusion, you know, we know that's, that's a, a useful tool. Uh, done some band resistant knee extensions again you just or more manually resisted at the joint again it's just a lever uh, it's just a different a different hinge so you know you just got to be quite creative in how you create that adaptation and my, my role as a as a technical lead in the midlands um you know I, I do wear that other hat which is a, a paralympic technical lead from a national perspective and i guess from my sense it's, it's using my experience but also using the experience of others um, to try and make sure that when SNC coaches do come into our system, they, they, they're confident, they've got the skill sets um, to be able to deal with athletes with a, a huge range of impairments. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Luke and Tom. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss some of the research which is going on in the area of Paralympic sport. We discuss again some of the challenges faced by new employees coming into a Paralympic program. And then the men- some mental health issues, given that it's men- Mental Health Awareness Month, we discuss some of the challenges and mental health issues um, which these two guys have come across, not only in the world of Paralympic sport, but in body sport as well. So really interesting part two coming up. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So I headed over to Belfast a few months ago and saw their warehouse and was very impressed with the kind of quality of equipment that they are making there. So they've done gym fit outs in the UK, in Dubai, in Europe. Um, all over the world so if you're interested in a full gym fit out or you just want to supplement the stuff that you've already got in your gym whether that be barbells uh, plates uh, new rack definitely consider the guys at black box fitness because i was very impressed with uh with what they were what they were making over there in belfast so if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about black box head over to their instagram or twitter which is at blk box fitness and you can see some of the projects they've been working on recently or you can head over to the website, which is blkboxfitness.com. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want, so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. 
So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics Force Plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating Force Plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. I'm going to come back to you, Tom, and I'm, I'm really conscious as I'm actually talking. I'm listening to myself, and probably, I probably amplifying the fact that I'm almost identifying these uh, SNC coaches who work with. Paralympic athletes mm. as having this completely different skill set, which is obviously the case because, as you demonstrated, Luke, but thinking that you, you have to be something else other than a strength and conditioning coach that's got an athlete in front of them, is, there, is this something that, as a, as a person that's in a role that is providing support for these athletes, to not switch the mindset, but switch pre the mindset like almost like I had for the first half hour that you have to have this completely separate skill set that is Paralympic focused in actual fact your training conditioning coach or your performance coach that is dealing with the Paralympic athlete is that something that you come across and have to deal with and and, and kind of mold people or is that something that I suppose just comes yeah I think you've described it really well system. so like we said, you, you're a, Luke said you're an SNC coach first, or so you're a practitioner first, regardless of discipline, and you've got an athlete in front of you. What we try and promote through technical leads and the expertise we have is that reflective process. So, okay, this athlete needs to achieve X as part of our performance plan, and it's that reflective process. Okay, what's the athlete? What's their experiences? What's the the influence of their parent on that performance? And then actually, that's that's Paralympic performance support at its best. Um, so it's the, once you get over that initial hurdle of um, the basic level of understanding, the comfortableness with the conversations, actually, that's the main thing. Um, the challenges arise when people don't take that opportunity to kind of reflect on their practice and would just employ interventions or techniques with a group of Paralympic athletes because it's worked in Olympic sport. Um, and, and that's the biggest risk from an injury or illness prevention um, that actually you could, you're not influencing performance, you're actually reducing it by um, increasing the risk of injury because you haven't really individualized your support properly. Um, so athletes and athletes, practitioners, practitioners, it's that reflective process of trying to understand what you're trying to achieve and the different um, constraints within that. Mm-hmm. So. So what is the, what, from your point of view, what is the thought process behind them coaches who have maybe employed them techniques that have worked in Olympic sports? What is, what is the skill mm. that's, I mean, like you say, it's reflective practice, but what are the skills necessary for that person to change what they do and how they do it given the athlete that's in front of them, not something that they've, yeah. something that they've worked with and maybe succeeded with a month, yeah. two months, six months, two years previously? Um, I think it's about it's the relationships between those practitioners and, and people with expertise within the network um, and actually trying to promote a sense of kind of curiosity in those practitioners to seek what could be done, what's been done in this space before. Um, and also for them just to, yeah, take the time to understand kind of what they're actually trying to achieve. Um, and, and this works with 
practitioners who maybe never been in Paralympic sport before, but actually take a very creative approach. They're curious to put the athlete first, then probably you, you wouldn't need the, the real in-depth level of understanding because that's just how you operate. Um, so we do try and kind of emphasize that. So when we put um, some multidisciplinary CPD opportunities or study days, we'll always try and one reflect the multidisciplinary nature of support. So what could we learn between SNC and physio, for example, or what could our nutritionists learn from strength conditioning? So you're always trying to seek a level of understanding from a different perspective. Um, and again, always involving the athlete as much as possible to, to get that layer of expertise. Mm-hmm. Just talking about the education side of things and building that building that learning, is there any what what research is going on in the EAS in terms of Paralympic athletes? I know one of you guys at the start mentioned that put into research yeah. gate and it, it come it comes a bit draws a blank. Is there anything in the EAS or institute or, sorry governing bodies that's going on? Yeah, I think across that area across the high performance system, there's um, probably a number of hotspots of kind of academic research in. Paralympic performance. So, Loughborough University, there's the Peter Harrison Centre of Disability Sport. Um, I know there's some work up at Manchester Met and St Mary's, other organisations that interact with um, kind of research in academia. I guess the one the one challenge I have coming from that background into the world of performances across any performance support, Olympic or Paralympic, the the true um, effectiveness of the research outputs into delivering performance because it is so individualized. So what we, what we try and do as a organizational performance support team is identify the performance questions and then try and engage with expertise, whether that's in academia to kind of understand the performance space a little bit more and try and build a better picture. Um, if we think there's a, a bigger area of research, then that's where we then engage again with the academic institutions to put a bit of work around that. Um, so one of the one of the really exciting bits of work that we did actually not really related to physical preparation, but just understanding athletes' transitions within Paralympic sports, so experiences into sport and out of sport. So that's where we use researchers who have a skill set in drawing those experiences out of athletes to then reflect back into our practices, performance lifestyle advisors and psychologists. Cool. So one one thing that I wanted to chat about, and I think is definitely a hot topic, and has been a hot topic for um, for a while now, especially mental health week. I think it was last week or the week before. Um, and chat about the mental health support that is available um, across the Paralympic programs. Now I'll come back to you, Tom, and then I'll um, I'll come to you, Luke, after in in, a, in some specific scenarios. But what what support is given for your, the Paralympic athletes in terms of mental health, and is that and this is coming from someone that know. Again, I'm happy to say I know zero about it. Is that something that is that has to be hyped up compared to the Olympic athletes? Is it less so? Is that no? I think it's an important question. It's someone? something we kind of um, are wrestling a bit with a minute. Uh, I guess as a system, as an organisation, that um, the basic principles of kind of mental health support that's been put in place uh, go across all NGBs, Olympic and Paralympic. So led by Dr. James Bale. You've got the the mental health expert panel that sits within EIS and UK Sport that is there really to to kind of drive practice in this area, both from a a clinical support for mental health problems when required, but also probably more importantly, actually promoting positive mental health within the system. Um, 
And again, that's the same across Olympic and Paralympic programs as, as practitioners and support teams, how we go about providing kind of the supportive environments that reflect the athletes. Um, but then you take the Paralympic athletes, then there are certain challenges that come with um, Paralympic sports. So you may have seen in the media recently around kind of the classification challenges. And whenever you have classification and people are being um, categorized for want of a better word, you may have people that um, end up changing classification and that can have a huge influence on someone's kind of identity or their life experiences if they've competed as an athlete in one classification and then they're forced to change. That changes to some extent the level at which they're competitive. It changes their performance landscape. So then you do require very specific support. Um, and there's other, there's some research around organizational stresses that actually for, for Paralympic athletes that give their experiences working with coaches who don't have a true understanding of, of them and, and their impairment and their kind of specific individual needs can provide an additional level of kind of stress or um, challenge for the athlete within sport. So there's, there's a few things that we are looking at, but more broadly, like the level of support is, it's increased massively in it. and it's great to see the, the level of kind of uptake there's been from sports in this area. And it's one thing that we're looking to carry on when we're looking towards Tokyo and Olympic and Paralympic Games, how we provide the appropriate level of support for physical and mental health in the games time environment, given the, I guess, the stressful nature of that, um, that time of the cycle. Mm-hmm. Luke, just coming back to you, in terms of you've been on the ground in front of these, in front of the Paralympic athletes, from your experience, is is how have you dealt with the, the kind of mental side of things in, with this with this group of um, uh, competitors? Yeah, I mean, like I said, uh, you get quite a diverse range of athletes um, coming through the system within within Paralympic sport. You know, there's, I think there's, for me, there's a different. I don't know, Tom, Tom, you can jump in here, mate, but like. I feel like, from my experiences, there's potentially a different motive as to as to why they do sport um, compared to, say, your, your your Olympic counterpart. And I think there's potentially other other motives at play. I don't always think that it's about, um, you know, the medal, um, which I, I guess it, it is. But I think there's potentially other mechanisms involved in, in trying to almost as an opportunity to try and almost re-identify. Uh, or, or use it as a way of um, not normalizing, but, but in that sort of world, in that sort of space, I think just it's an opportunity to, I don't know, there's sort of words that I can't really get out of my mouth, but, you know, it's that I, I've witnessed I think that. it's a really good point, Luke. And that, but yeah. One thing that we experience a lot is athletes get fast-tracked into kind of the world of high performance very quickly. Um, so if you're an athlete with a certain impairment that makes you very competitive within your classification. You could go from um, having an injury or having an event to a year later being considered for selection for world-class programs. And you may never been in a sporting environment before and never really considered sport as an interest or, or a passion. Um, so I think that really is, uh, again, a difference in just the, the lived experience of the athlete coming into this world. And like Luke said, what, what was the main reason for them coming into this world? Was it because they wanted to be the best athlete to be because they love that sport? Or is it that sport actually provides a vehicle for them for, in other ways? 
I think I just reflecting now just on some experiences that I faced like you know, I, I remember one athlete. Um, he he arrived in the talent program um, in a wheelchair. He he was a, an incomplete T12 um, spinal lesion. Um, so um, I guess his for for simple terms, I guess his his, his, ner- his nervous <laughs> system is, is is kind of it's like a millimeter a week. It was almost rebuilding itself um, following a, a snow sport injury. Um, so again, he's, he's incomplete. So it's not you know he still has the uh, impairment where he can't. Um, kind of dorsiflex the ankle he has like a lot of muscle bulk has gone so there's a lot of atrophy in that in that limb but progressively over the years that I spent with with the individual he he um he could then stand uh and then he could walk um and so forth so his 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 impairment I guess is progressive um compared to some of the others which are static um and there's a there's a difference there as an S&C coach and that's that's quite an important thing to understand is um is, is that and I, I remember being out in, I think it was Moscow, and and obviously his impairment had progressed. And certain athletes on the program, you know, you've, you've only got a. It's, it's quite hard, it's quite hard as as an S and C, you know, uh, you know, it's quite hard to, to empathise in that situation. But like other other athletes whose impairments are static and can't change, and then this person suddenly in a wheelchair, and then they're not. Like that's not fair. Like, um, and that's. You know, I've witnessed I've witnessed all sorts of arguments um, over over certain things, and it's it, it's not um, you know this word inspiring gets spread about quite a lot. You know, they're athletes at the end of the day, the same way as other athletes. They just they still you know comment on certain things and and things like that. But anyway, this this athlete in question got reclassified. You know, he got put up into a, a different class, and and suddenly the competition was a bit tougher. And and actually, he's you know, fast forward a few more years, he's now performing really well in that classification. Um, so, Luke, just so, yeah. to, to pick up on one of those things as well, you, I'm thinking of kind of coaches that might be listening to this or um, kind of early in their career. Um, I won't mention any athletes' names, but we, we've, we've heard examples of athlete experiences where certain physical preparation interventions or certain kind of interventions in the gym almost takes an athlete's function back a level. And it... Um, because what you're trying to do is build a level of physical competency, but just to, to to get to the level you want to be, you might have to take a few steps backwards. And athletes previously have ex- experienced certain training as similar to like they were doing in rehabilitation or that they did shortly after their injury. So it's trying to recognise that when that might kind of challenge the relationship between athlete and practitioner, and just um, try and emphasise the the reasons behind certain interventions and certain training programs. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're completely right, and I think there's been scenarios where, you know, you work with an athlete, and it, it becomes quite global in a way. But as as you start to build up your intelligence with what's going on performance-wise, you, your 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 questions get a bit more succinct and a bit more unique, and and you start you suddenly then kind of go right. Well, if we just challenge this part, maybe we can just increase range of movement here, which will right. Okay, well, let's let's see if we could really explore that because we don't know. So we'll take that through into the gym and, and suddenly the athletes, like you said, having to go almost three steps backwards and it could be quite, um, you know, it, it's, it could be quite hard to, hard to take, um, to, to almost, it's, it's like holding a mirror saying, look, this is what you can't do. Um, so as an SNC, I, I've always found myself being, being the positive, um, card and being very much like, you know, like this is, we know you can bench the bench pull this and we know you can chin that, but, this particular movement here will give you the opportunity to be able to do X. And I know it's, I know it's, um, 
you feel vulnerable here and I know you, you, it's quite challenging but I think as a, as a group and as a team around you I really think we can progress this and I think that's the way you've got to you package it as a, as a partnership and yeah yeah one thing both of you mentioned a couple of times is the impact that training can potentially have on a wider scale in terms of the way potentially live their life and getting around, whether it be, you know, just getting from the gym to the car or whatever, how them, how your exercise prescription or um, any in-depth programming can affect that. Is there any lessons that have maybe been learnt along the way? And I'm happy to open that up to both of you that have kind of emphasised that fact that what you do can obviously with Olympic athletes that's going to be exactly the same, but maybe it's just it's slightly more obvious in this Paralympic scenario. Yeah, go for it. Do you want me to go? Go for it, Luke. <laughs> um, I guess, I guess, in this sense, you know, you've, you've got some athletes that, like I said before, they use sport as a vehicle for other other means. And I guess there's some athletes that that they obviously want to get medals and they, and they want to pursue that, but they also see it as a, I guess, not not everyone, but I guess I've I've witnessed certain scenarios where athletes have used it as a means of of rehabilitation in a way. Um, so it's almost like an indirect mechanism behind why they're doing it, um, and that's definitely a massive generalisation. That's that's just a, a, a particular case that I, I experienced, and it was always a bit difficult for the coach because it was kind of like, look, well, he wants to do X to enhance his ability to to do something something outside of the gym, or you know, in his in his daily life. That's brilliant, but we're about performance. You know, this is about winning medals and. That was the fight. That was that was one head on, and so it's got a lot of frustration um, because you know what that person wanted to do was going to take a lot of resource. And, and again, the question that the whole team have got around is: Is it going to make the boat go faster? And if it's not doing that, then then why are we doing it? But I think there is this this other other side um, to it as well that you need to almost respect, and and that's that's the same with with working with with an Olympic athlete as well. It's it's obviously like you said a bit yeah. more pronounced. I can think of one really specific example around um, a group of wheelchair athletes we used to work with, and we see so doing incredibly hard kind of physical training session on the court, looking for adaptation, kind of anaerobic interval session. Um, you then forget that they then push up a hill to lunch, jump in their car after lunch, and drive home, predominantly using all of their upper limbs. Um, so we actually just had to, to say to guys that we need to keep you here for a bit longer, like you need to rest or if you're, if you're driving home, just consider the fact that you are like incredibly fatigued. Um, and it's that real fine balance between yeah, chasing a performance goal and then just uh, the, the well-being of that athlete outside of, outside of the sports hall. Um, but you, you, you kind of pick that up and just getting the athlete's experience again as much as possible. Um, and sometimes they might not. Um, I've met people who wouldn't ask for help in terms of pushing up the hill. They're just they're so kind of um, uh, they'd like to be doing it under their own steam, and they would wouldn't ask for help even though they're actually physically really really fatigued. Uh, so it's quite a specific example, but just something to to consider. For 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 a practitioner, a young practitioner, or any practitioner who wants to get more involved with. Paralympic sport what would be the what would be a good foundation to be able to build to work towards that for 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 coaches S&C coaches out there from your guys experience having been there and, and done it mm. oh that's a really good question I think you know if I if I was a strength and conditioning coach out there now and I you know I, 
I wanted to work in in Paralympic S and C, which again, first firstly, that's that for me is great because I think as strength and conditioning, I, well, not just strength and conditioning, but other disciplines, it's always it's always working in Paralympic sport. You know, it's always it's always been the bridesmaid, never the bride. Um, you know, you've always, people have always used it as a as a almost stepping stone to then work in an Olympic sport. Whereas I feel like I don't know, and you might I don't know if you feel differently, Tom, but like it's it's kind of changing, and I think people are actually seeing it as an opportunity to become a better practitioner or, you know, there's, there's certain elements of working within a Paralympic sport that Olympic sport can't give you. Um, and I feel like to the route to try and get into it is, is no real different to getting a route in Olympic SNC. I think you still go through the same journey. Um, it, it, I think you just potentially for me, just try and expose yourself to, to lots of, Lots of uh, creative and different different injuries, different human movement scenarios, and and different sports have different goals. And work with youth athletes, you can with, with the injured people. You know, it's I think just all experience that will really add to the kind of bandwidth again of solutions. Keep using that word, but it will just add add to it, add to that bank of of solutions. So that when you do work in Paralympic sport, at least you've got a um, you know a means of being able to create change. Mm. I think you're right. I think there is. There is a growing sense that practitioners want to want to specialise and, and kind of want to be experts in in the Paralympic domain, which I think, from our perspective, is is brilliant. And I'd say, as Dean's Institute of Sport and within NGBs, we've got some of the best practitioners around the world. So, um, trying to make connections in where possible, um, in the same way like you would do Olympic sports. I a, a shout out for the EIS skills for performance, which is one route for kind of early career practitioners to. And experience what it takes to work in a multidisciplinary team, or kind of how this high performance system operates, and that's currently out um, for advert, I think. So check out the IS website, and then just other other simple things like um, trying to find some of the academic literature on on Google Scholar. It might not be the most performance related, but it will tell you things around certain impairment groups um, that will start to build that level of understanding. Cool. Well, I think. That's probably a good place to, to round things up. But I just wanted to thank you both for coming on and, and lining this up. At, I know it's tough to, to get three people's diaries arranged to, to, to coordinate. But, Tom, coming, coming back to you first off, where, where's the best place for people to contact you uh, about the work that you do, the athletes that you work with? Um, is it Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? What's the best place? Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty behind the times on social media. So I'm, Twitter's probably the best way. I'm the, the Tom underscore Paulson. Um, any kind of questions or, or comments just kind of follow some of the activity we've got going on through Twitter Excellent and Luke? Yes uh, same yeah Twitter I think it's yeah, sweet077 um, Nice is, the, is that 077 <laughs> I haven't got does that mean anything like <laughs> oh, just what was available Do you know what I was probably hung over at the time and thought it was 007 <laughs> but it ended up just being yeah. 077 and it's just stuck so <laughs> excellent good honesty love it well like i said before thank you you two for um giving me time uh on a thursday evening to have a chat and um keep the good work and we'll we'll chat soon cheers thanks thanks thank you cheers thank you mate thanks thanks guys thanks for tuning in to this episode of the pacey performance podcast i hope you enjoyed the episode with luke and tom so really interesting coming from my point of view in that i haven't had anyone working with paralympic athletes on the podcast before 
So it was a great eye-opener for me and slightly uncomfortable at times because I know so little about um, this world um, of Paralympic sport. So big thanks to Luke and Tom for, for coming on and sharing their knowledge and experience um, of working within this population. So big thanks to you for your constant support. And if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast podcast player, make sure you do. And if you've got time to leave a rating and a review, I would be eternally grateful. So thank you very much for your support. And I will chat to you next week.